This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Hi, everyone. My name is Adam Chilton. I'm an, assist, an assistant professor here at the law school, uh, and I primarily do research on how we can use empirical methods to understand the effectiveness of international law. Now, the topic for today's talk is how, despite efforts by myself and others to try to use empirical methods to study the effectiveness of international law, we essentially know nothing about it. Uh, and to try to explain why it is that we know nothing about it and how maybe experiments can at least help to start to change that. Now, before I go on, uh, as I was putting this talk together, uh, I increasingly felt self-conscious about the fact that I'd be standing in the house that Ronald Coase, uh, Frank Easterbrook, Richard Epstein, Richard Posner, Eric Posner, and others built, uh, and labeling this one of Chicago's best ideas. That seems a little arrogant, so I'm going to scratch that uh, and instead take a line from Jack Donahue in 30 Rock and simply say, this numbers among Chicago's ideas. (laughs) Now... I'm an empiricist, uh, and I believe that we should start by looking at data. So it's worth talking about some numbers. And the number that inspired me when I started graduate school and started law school, and that I spent my most time thinking about, was this. 62 million. Now, 62 million is the number of civilians that were killed during conflict over the last 100 years. Think about that for a second. It's just a staggeringly huge number of innocent civilians that died in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Iraq-Iran War, uh, in the Congo, and a huge number of conflicts that for over 100 years people continually uh, suffered and then died despite being innocent civilians that should have been exempt from the conflict. Now, as a student uh, of international law, the question is that I'm interested in is how we might be able to use law to solve this problem. That is, are there ways that we can regulate conflict to make it so that these civilian death totals will go down uh, and decrease? That is, we may never be able to eliminate the casualties of war, but hopefully law can help us to reduce them. So naturally, when I get to law school and got to graduate school, I thought, I'm going to set out and read all of the articles that have studied whether or not the laws of war are working to protect civilians. So as you might expect, there's a huge number of academic articles on nearly everything. There's just publication after publication on every topic. So, for example, there's 1,150 articles. That's quite a lot. Not on the laws of war, though. That's articles with either Iqbal or Twombly in the title. (laughs) Now, I know it's important uh, to know whether or not the pleading standard is notice pleading or ever so slightly more than notice pleading. Uh, But I think that the laws of war are an important topic, too. So, as you'd expect, there are... Can you see it? There's actually two there now on the bar graph on the right. That's right, two papers on whether or not the laws of war actually work. Think about that for a second. Here's a problem where the stakes could not possibly be higher. That is whether or not we can use legal regimes to try to protect millions of innocent civilians and people don't study it. We don't know whether or not the entire international law project since World War II to regulate conflicts is working. That's really a staggering fact, right? And something that we should be demoting more energy to. Now, that said, you might think that two papers are enough if they agree. They don't. They reach the opposite conclusion. So here's a topic of the utmost importance with two papers on it that come to the opposite conclusion about the effectiveness of laws of war 
and yet still hardly anything's written on this. We know basically nothing. Now, it's not just the laws of war, though. There's no consensus on whether or not international law on human rights or international law uh, on the laws of war have any effect. Now, I don't mean whether or not they have a dramatic effect. I mean any effect at all on state behavior. So there's three big areas of international law. There's international economic law, international human rights law, and the laws of war. Those are the three big bodies of international law. And in two of the three, we don't know if they're making any difference on state behavior, despite the efforts of international lawyers, international interest groups, the efforts to create treaties, etc. There just isn't consensus. Now, let me illustrate this uh, in one way. So in the last few years, we've had two big empirical books that looked at the data on human rights. The first is by Beth Simmons of Harvard. And this is the way she starts her book. She looks at all of the evidence and says, this volume argues that international human rights law has made a positive contribution to the realization of human rights in the world. Right? So Beth Simmons looks at the data and says, yes, human rights law is making a difference. Now, flash forward a few years, our own Eric Posner looks at the same data and the same treaties and says, the starting point for his book is that human rights law has failed to accomplish its objectives. So in these core areas of human rights, we just don't know what's happening. It's not we don't know whether or not one treaty is better than the other or if it has a massive effect or a medium effect. We just don't know if it's having any effect and if it's working at all. So think about this. In other areas, scholars argue how we can change laws to maximize their effect. That is, if we change tax policies in this way, what will be the effect on behavior? Same thing if we change antitrust rules or negligence rules. How will people change their primary behavior? What effect will it have on litigation, etc.? But in international law, we're still having the first debate about whether or not international law has any effect at all. That is, in both human rights and the laws of war, there's disagreement on whether the act of creating treaties has had the effect of changing the way that states behave, uh, the way that they conduct themselves, and the, um, the policies that they implement. So we just don't know. Now, the obvious question, though, is why? Why don't we know whether or not human rights law uh, and the laws of war are working? Now, the first and probably most promising answer to most people uh, is that myself and others working in this area are either lazy, stupid, or a combination of the both. All right? Now, that's certainly possible, uh, and I'm admittedly biased, but I would suggest that that's not exactly what's going on. Instead, what we have is just an incredibly deep, intractable question that's very, very difficult to solve with observational research methods. That is, we only, we take the data as it exists in the world, and when we look at it, it's tough to try to tease out causality. That is, whether or not the act of signing treaties or passing new laws, what's changing behavior. So the idea that I've been working on for the last few years uh, is to try to think about what are the exact reasons that we don't know, try to identify them, uh, isolate them, and explain them, and then by explaining those reasons, we can start to solve the problem. So when you have a problem with causal inference, which is exactly what this is, the best thing to do is to think about it like an experimentalist. Now, the idea is, even if you can't run an experiment because it's too expensive, too complicated, or unethical to do. If you think about the question that you're trying to answer as an experiment, it can highlight flaws in the problem. That is, it can isolate what it is that you need to know and why you don't know it. So in this case, let's think about international law like an experiment. 
And when you have an experiment, what you need to know is what's the specific treatment that you're interested in? That is, are you administering a drug for the first time? Uh, are you trying to get people to study for a certain way for a test? Whatever it is, right? You have a specific treatment that you're interested in. You give it out to some people and then not others, and you try to measure its effectiveness. Now, what we need to do is think about international law and the problem of causality that we have in studying it in the same way. So what I would suggest is that there's at least five problems with the observational data in international law that make it a pretty biased experiment, so to say, speak, uh, and really difficult to study. So what are those? What are those five problems that make it all but impossible to know whether or not international law is having an effect? We'll say something about each. So the first is lack of variance. Now, a basic requirement for any uh, causal inference is that the treatment that you're interested in has to vary. That is, if everyone receives the tra same treatment, we don't know if it's having an effect. So let's think about with this with an example. So let's say uh, you're 1L and you've come to the University of Chicago and people won't stop mentioning in torts class, in property class, and in CBI lectures, Ronald Coase. So you become convinced that the keys to the kingdom here at the University of Chicago is mentioning Coase. And when it's time for your torts exam, no matter what, you're going to mention Coase for every single question. <laughs> now, let's say that this idea sounds so good to all of your section mates that everyone agrees and says, we're all going to mention Coase to the answer to every single question on our exam, no matter what the question is, and then we're all going to do better, right? Now, after the exam grades come out, it would be impossible to know whether or not everyone mentioning a COS made people's grades higher, right? Because if everyone mentions COS, it's impossible to tell whether or not it's COS that's doing the work or some other factor. Perhaps it's a particularly smart year of 1Ls uh, this year, or that the teacher focused up extra hard when teaching the material, or whatever it is that could explain the grades that come out of it, right? So it has to be the case that some people mention COS and others don't. Now, let's, talk, let's apply this back to international law. The problem is that in international law, the entire goal of the project is to create universally applicable rules. So that is, when we create treaties, the goal is to get everyone to sign them and everyone to participate in these treaty regimes. So let's think about this with some data. So here's the, uh, uh, the graph on the number of countries that have signed international human rights treaties. So the first major, there's six major international human rights treaties, the first of which, the Convention on Elimination um, of Racial Discrimination, has nearly 180 signatories. The second major treaty, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, 170, roughly. The ICESR, which is the International Covenant on Economic and Social uh, and Cultural Rights, 160. Con Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, 185. The Convention of Elimination uh, Against Torture, excuse me, 150-something. Uh, and then the Convention on the Rights of the Child, nearly 190 signatories. So what you have there, when you start thinking about this in terms of the number of actual countries in the world, is close to everyone, right? There's roughly 193 UN members, and most have signed these major international treaties. So we have just very little variance on which countries have signed treaties to study and to exploit for an experiment. Now, this isn't just international human rights law where you have this problem. It's also a problem with the laws of war, too. So just to put it in perspective, here's four major treaties that try to regulate conflict. You have the Convention Against Genocide, the Geneva Conventions of 1949, Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, and Additional Protocol 2, uh, which regulates civil war. And once again, when you compare it to the number of UN members, it's a huge percent of them. 
Now, you might be thinking for a second, well, there's still some gap there, right? There's still some countries that haven't signed these agreements, and there's at least some variance that you can exploit. Even that, there's two complications that make it a little more difficult. Here's one of those complications. It can't just be the case that you have some variance. What you need is variance among the people that are likely to change their behavior as a consequence of the treatment. That is, not all treatment people respond the same to treatments, so we can't just have variance among some countries uh, to know if it's having, making a difference. So if it's the case that the very best countries in the world are, when their terms of human rights don't sign these treaties, we wouldn't know if they're making a difference for those countries that have worse records, or vice versa. So you can't just have any variance. You need variance among the group that you think the treatment is going to have an effect on. We don't have that in international law. But here's the second problem that confounds even that customary international law. So the idea here is that for some requirements, some of the core ideas like not targeting civilians during war or not torturing innocent people, for these core requirements of international law, it's the case that even if you haven't signed on to the treaty, the treaty uh, that they're considered to be customary norms of international law uh, and that countries can't opt out of them. As a result, there's still universally applicable norms and groups forcing and trying to pressure countries to comply with these agreements regardless of whether or not they've signed them. And there's a number of countries, the United States included, that hasn't signed some major treaties but still says that we recognize that these are parts of the norms of international law. So as a result, even the little bit of variance that it does exist among the countries that have signed them isn't really enough to study them. So that's the first problem that's proven all but insurmountable. Here's the second problem. The second problem is inadequate samples. So let's say, going back to our idea of the COAST experiment, uh, that instead of telling everyone you recognize that would be a mistake because everyone would jump on your great idea, um, and instead you decide just to tell one other friend, and the two of you are going to mention COAST in every final. Now, after grades came out, it would be really difficult to know if COAST was making the difference because you just have so few people to leverage. Or alternatively, let's say that you once again get good variance. That is, you get half of your section to mention COAST, but you're being taught by Lovemore. And he might not be representative, right? He might love mentions of COAST, even though other professors wouldn't be so responsive. So instead, in that case, you'd also want to run the experiment over multiple professors, right? That is, you need to have a sample from which you can judge the size of the treatment effects. In international law, this is proven to be problematic. And the reason is that our international law regulates countries. So our unit of observation is frequently at the country level. And so instead, we try to look at whether or not countries are better and worse in particular years on their human rights record. Now, the result is that we have a relatively small sample for many of these treaties, for many of these agreements, even when you can find variants. So here's one way to think about that or how to illustrate this, this inadequate sample problem that we're constantly dealing with is the short ratification windows that exist for treaties, which is to say it wasn't the case that uh, the second a treaty was open for signature that 200 countries immediately signed it or 180 countries. Instead, there's some window from which the country is available for signature uh, until, when, uh, until when the treaty uh, is fully in effect. So here's the ratification windows for the major human rights treaties. So you see for the first few treaties, it's pretty slow, although the number of countries in the world has increased as well. So it, it's actually uh, not quite the same as the way the graph even makes it look. But they start to get faster. And it's increasingly the case that for international treaties, that in just a very short time frame, uh, that most countries have signed them. For example, for the Convention of the Rights of the Child, it just took five years. And right now, another international treaty that's going into force is the Convention Against Elimination Against People with Disabilities. That ratification window looks even shorter still. 
So the result is you're looking at the unit of observation as the country level, and you have a very short window in which there's very, any variance and observations to look at. So it's just not enough to convincingly know whether or not these treatments are having an effect because there's so much going on during any period. That is, there's economic fluctuations, there's fluctuations in international security or terrorism or all these other factors taking place other than just these treaties during these windows. So we just have a really small sample. The same thing is true on conventions on the laws of war, whereas you see the trend has gotten even shorter and narrower for these windows. That is, time periods in which there's variance. And here's another complication that exists as well which is that not only do you have these short windows to study when there's any variance, that you have to have the events that you're interested in studying take place during those windows. So if you're interested in the regulation of the laws of war, there's been, and you don't have any uh, major interstate wars that exist during the period where there's variation, there's just nothing to study, right? You have these really small sample sizes. So that's a problem as well. So that's now two er ways in which uh, that it's difficult to get any leverage using observational data on what's going on. Here's the third. The third is overlapping legal constraints. Now, the uh, problem here is that when you're interested in a treatment, uh, if you have multiple treatments happening at once, it's difficult to disaggregate their causal effects. So what do I mean by this? So let's go back to the idea of that COS experiment and for its impact on grades. And not only do you decide that you're going to run an experiment on COS, mentioning COS in every exam question, you also think that people talk about Richard Posner a lot here, so a really good recipe for success is to name check Richard Posner no matter what you're talking about. So you decide, all right, I'm going to mention Coase and I'm going to name check Posner in my exam answers. I'm going to get people from both sections to do this and I'm going to make sure that it's only half of the class so that we have variance, that we have a big enough sample, uh, and we can try both of these things out. Now the problem is if you're trying both of these experiments at once, and both sets of people uh, are both mentioning Coase and Posner, you could never tell the difference for what's doing the work, right? It might be that people love Coase and hate Posner, so you result in no treatment effects at all, or people love Posner more than Coase, et cetera, and you just wouldn't know the difference. Now, in international law, this is a problem as well. And the reason it's a problem is that countries have come up with a lot of overlapping legal obligations. That is, some of the same prohibitions exist in multiple treaties, and so those different treaty regimes all regulate the same conduct. But additionally, there's been huge pressure to countries to take international legal principles about human rights and the laws of war and incorporate them into their domestic law. Here's just one illustration of this phenomenon. So here's uh, the number of countries that have ratified the Convention Against Torture. So we have nearly 160 countries that have ratified the Convention Against Torture and have signed an international treaty pledging that they won't torture their citizens under any circumstances. Here's the number of countries with a constitutional prohibition against torture. It's nearly identical. So even if you think that this treaty is doing an effect, if you were to run a study where the treatment was ratification of the Convention Against Torture and the outcome that you're interested in is rates of torture, the problem that you have is that it could be constitutional law that's doing all of the work, right? And if that were the case, we wouldn't know if whether or not the treaty regime is making a difference at all because there's no way to tell what's the difference between these two things. Now, this happens time and time again where there's constitutional protections for freedom of religion and an international treaty that the same countries have ratified on freedom of religion. Or it's the case where countries pass two different treaty regimes doing the same thing. And the result is we end up with this web of overlapping legal restraints and constraints that make it difficult to isolate the effect of any one treatment. So we don't know if it's one treaty regime, one set of rights, et cetera, that's making the difference. So that's the third problem. Here's the fourth. 
The fourth is inadequate dependent variables. So, so let's say once again that you're running your experiment on whether or not mentioning coast leads to higher grades. Uh, you're doing it in both sections. You're only having half of the class do it. So you're doing everything right, and you forgot about that crazy name-checking Posner idea. So you're doing everything right. But that, then you run into the problem that people might not want to reveal their grades. So instead you say, well, we can't know what everyone's grades are for torts. So instead what we'll do is we'll come up with some proxy. And we'll come up with some way to measure grades uh, and see who does well. So you might think that a proxy for, for 1L grades is who's crying on the day that grades come out. Right? So you're going to go around and count up which of your friends have red, uh, a red face or you see tears on. Or maybe people check their grades at home, so that's not going to work. So you decide, all right, uh, people aren't going to go to bar review the week that grades come out if they're feeling down uh, because they won't want to be in public. So I'm going to count up who's at bar review as a proxy for who got good grades, right? Now, obviously, these are potentially biased measures, right? Some people just love to cry uh, or are more prone to cry. And even if they got amazing grades, they have all 180s, they think, oh, I wanted 182, right? <laughs> and so that could be a problem. Or it could be the case that people show up at Bar Review to drink away their sorrows. So maybe that measure is biased. So you just really don't know. The problem is, is that we have this in human rights as well. For both human rights and laws of war, in many cases, it's the countries with the better records that are more open to self-reporting uh, that are more willing to have investigative reports taking place to see whether or not torture is ex taking place. Uh, and as a result, the data is pretty biased. We don't have objective measures of human rights performances in the way that we would need to study this. This even gets more complicated by the fact that even if you can find one piece of data where we have good evidence on, let's say we don't have good evidence on torture rates, we don't have good evidence on targeting civilians, we don't even have good evidence on freedom of civilians, but maybe we have good evidence on jailing journalists because journalists report it. And so we have some count that takes place of the number of journalists that are jailed. The issue that exists is that the number of rights protected in treaties is huge. So here's an example. This is the number of different specific rights that are protected in the various major international human rights treaties. What you can see is they don't protect one thing, they protect a dozen things, or two dozen things, or in the case of I, the ICCPR, nearly 60 things, right? And so the idea is, even if for the ICCPR you can measure freedom of journalists, you might not be able to measure uh, the right to vote or some other fundamental political right. And the idea is, so what we can't know is whether or not it's these rights treaties are making a difference in one case and not the other. Because we're running an experiment, so to speak, that is, do these treaties make a difference, where we can't measure all of the dependent variables that we're interested in. And even when we can find one dependent variable, that is, that you find a data set on human rights practices around the world, they're frequently just hopelessly biased. Because the reporting standards are different, reporting standards have changed over time, different countries are more open about their failures than others, and so we just don't have a consistent way to measure these things. So now it's the case that we have an experiment with no variance, uh, a small sample size, overlapping constraints, and no dependent variables, right? It's not looking good. But it gets even worse, because here's the biggest problem still. The biggest problem still is selection bias. So what do I mean by that? So selection bias exists when the administration of a treatment is systematically related to the dependent variable of interest. So let's go back to that Coase idea and that Coase hypothetical. So even at the University of Chicago, mentioning Coase on every single exam question, regardless of what the question asks, is a pretty dumb idea. So imagine that you're only able to talk the worst students in the class into doing that, right? 
Uh, then you'd have a problem if it turned out that those students did worse on the exam because they might have been the people most likely to do poorly on the exam. So this is selection bias, right? The people that get the treatment have a systematic relationship to the likely outcome. The problem in international law is just immense. Now, it's really difficult to illustrate exactly why this is with a simple graph, but the problem is this. The problem is... uh, the problem is, is that countries voluntarily sign on to international agreements. And their likelihood of signing those agreements is systematically related to their likely human rights practices. So it might be the case that some countries sign on to the treaties because they already have great human rights practices. That is Norway or Sweden or Northern Europe. And they think, of course I'll sign the Convention Against uh, eliminate, Eliminating Discrimination Against Women. We already treat women fabulously here. There's no reason not to sign it. So in that case, countries that are selecting in are doing so because of the likely values of their uh, dependent variable. It can also be the opposite, though, right? You can imagine a world in which a lot of dictators just never have seen a human rights treaty that they didn't like to sign, right? This is the case with some countries like North Korea and Zimbabwe that will sign treaties and agreements even if they don't plan to honor them. But in both cases here, you have this problem, right? That countries are opting into agreements based on their preferences, So we don't have random assignment or anything even close to it uh, of what um, these treaties are. So we're not randomly assigning them. There's no variance. There's small sample size. There's overlapping constraints. And just problem upon problem is problem problem. Now, once you start to think of the scope of all of these problems, it starts to to become clear uh, that it's just not clear what's going on. So the question is, what can we do? What can we do in the face of all of these problems that make causal inference all but impossible. Now, there's no one solution. There's no one magic bullet. There's no one study that can answer the question, do human rights treaties make a difference? Or do the laws of war improve um, countries' performance of protecting civilians? Can't answer it with one question. So instead, what we have to think about is ways that we can start triangulating in on the answer in the face of all of these hurdles and these barriers to causal inference. Now, one, one p- proposal that I've been pushing for the last few years and is starting to gain a little traction is using experiments. So I think that thinking like an experimentalist helps to illustrate why we have problems in causal inference in international law. And I also think that it can help us start trying to solve some of these problems. And here's why. With experiments, it's the case that both that we get to randomize the assignment of treatments. That is, we can overcome the problem of lack of variance uh, by using the experiments. And additionally, as part of the experiment, we're collecting our own new data. So the problems of inadequate dependent variables are less relevant as well. Now, as long as you can find ways to avoid some of these other problems, that is, only studying one treatment at once instead of overlapping treatments, or not letting people self-select into the experiment based on their preferences, you can start to get around them. So the idea, though, is that you have to think of experiments that can uh, take advantage of theorized mechanisms that would work in the case of international law. So let's talk about why people think that international law might make a difference in the context of human rights. So in the context of human rights, uh, um, the story goes something like this. So we have state A and state B, and we have some international agreement. So countries decide that they're going to sign on to that international agreement. So This might be the United States and Mexico, let's say. And so the United States and Mexico both say that they're going to sign on to this international treaty. Now, the question then is how the act of signing that treaty actually leads to changes in state behavior. Now, for most international agreements, the story goes something like this. 
The first is that the international agreement, either through an international institution or some mechanism that it has leverage, can apply direct pressure on the state to change its behavior to comply with the agreement. The second mechanism is reciprocity between the countries. So if state A and state B both sign on to be part of the World Trade Organization, and as part of that, they're supposed to lower their tariff rates, if state B doesn't lower its tariff rate, both the WTO applies pressure uh, to try to get things to change, but also state B can raise its tariff rates in response. And through this reciprocity mechanism, it's the case that you can pressure states into changing their behavior based on the fact that they've signed a previous agreement. Now, this is the normal story that exists in the case of international agreements. But it's not the story that exists in the case of human rights law. Here's why. So for human rights agreements, things are different because the nature of the institutions are different, first off. So human rights organizations have essentially no budget, uh, and no oversight mechanisms, and no mechanisms of coercion. Uh, I recently read the New York Times reported that the UN Committee on Human Rights has a lower budget than what Switzerland spends in chocolate in a single year. Right? And they're supposed to monitor the entire world. So it's really unlikely that they're able to do it on their own. They have no coercive mechanisms. So this mechanism is just entirely ineffective and is gone. Right? So it's unlikely that we'd expect that states to change their behavior because someone at the United Nations wrote a report. Because that report is filed away and it's unclear what it would do. Now that said, you might still think it's the case that if state A uh, is violating human rights, state B will do something about it. So first off, though, the reciprocity story just isn't plausible here, which is to say if one country is torturing its citizens, state B isn't going to respond by torturing its own citizens and hoping that it teaches state A a lesson, right? (laughs) Doesn't work like that. So we have this reciprocity mechanism not making sense in the same way either. You might still think that states would pressure countries to comply with human rights in other ways, that is by uh, direct military intervention or holding back on aid. But we see very few examples of this. That is, even Beth Simmons and Eric Posner, people that both disagree on the effectiveness of human rights, don't believe in what they call sympathetic enforcement. So this mechanism is gone. So then the question is, how is it even theoretically possible that signing on to a human rights agreement could change change state behavior when people don't believe that the international institution has enough force of power to do anything, and people don't think that sympathetic enforcement or reciprocity is likely? So here's the theory that exists, the theory that's been proposed. The idea is that the act of signing onto the international agreement might actually change the domestic politics of that country. So what does that mean? The idea is that if a country signs onto a treaty pledging to respect the rights of women, that then opposition groups within that country can point to policies and say, wait a second, you still are not giving women equal wages despite the fact that you promised that you do that. And the fact that the treaty exists means that the argument that the country should do this is even more powerful. Because then the opposition groups can say, not only ought you do this for moral reasons, for economic reasons, for whatever other reasons you might think of, but that you need to do it in order to honor this international commitment that's been made. It might also be the case then that courts take this more seriously and that they incorporate the fact that an international agreement's been signed into their law so human rights groups and interest groups can bring litigation. So the idea is there's these different mechanisms that exist that are internal to the country that the existence of a human rights treaty might change. So that's a theory, and a plausible theory for why why human rights agreements might change state behavior uh, that a number of international law scholars believe. Now, the the problem is is that directly studying it uh, is all but impossible for the reasons that I previously told you. That is, 
that these countries opt into these agreements by their own choice. We don't actually measure their human rights practices in a meaningful and consistent way. We don't have good data. They've got a lot of different agreements, et cetera. So how is it that you could go about trying to test this, this idea that the existence of an agreement changes people's views just because it's an international commitment and that it's different than just appealing to morality or economics or some other source of authority when making the argument as a political opposition. Now, experiments are one way that we can test that, right? And the idea is that you can run an experiment where you give people information, and what you vary is information about international law and see if their views are different. So I've been doing a number of experiments over the last few years, uh, essentially on this idea. Um, uh, in the United States, uh, working on some developing countries as well, uh, with scholars at uh, Princeton and Harvard and Germany, all trying to exploit this. But here's just one example, uh, the most basic example that I have for you uh, of an experiment trying to test something like this. The idea is this. You survey some large number of people, and you tell them a story that's entirely about domestic politics. That is, there's no way that there's a threat of external enforcement, or at least people think it's unlikely to be true. So here's the experiment in this case. It's about solitary confinement. So solitary confinement is something that's plausibly regulated by international treaties uh, and something that the United States might be in violation of its international agreements on. Now I say might because this is a contested uh, subject among scholars of international law, but there's at least a colorable argument that this is a place in which the United States uh, isn't living up to its international commitments. Now, the experiment goes like this. So people are told that the United States often subjects prisoners to solitary confinement for extended periods of times. These periods can last years. When in solitary confinement, prisoners are held in their cell for up to 23 hours a day and deprived of human contact. Then people are told an argument in favor of this. So supporters of the use of solitary confinement argue that its use is necessary to maintain prison discipline and ensure the safety of prisoners and guards and like. Then people are given an experimental treatment where they're given differing information that I'll explain in a second. Then people are told that there's a proposal to reform solitary confinement. That is, American lawmakers have been considering reforms that would eliminate the use of solitary confinement except in extreme circumstances when keeping the prisoner in the general population would pose immediate safety risks. Then people are simply asked, do you approve, disapprove, or neither approve or disapprove uh, of these reforms? Now, the key is the treatment, right? That is, what information people are given. So in this case, which, as I told you, is the, the most basic use case of this idea uh, and this way of testing mechanisms of human rights compliance, is this. So one group is told no, no argument against solitary confinement at all. You've got a control group. The second group is given a placebo. That is, critics of the use of solitary confinement argue that it should be eliminated, except in the most extreme cases, because it violates the human rights of the prisoners held in solitary confinement. Now, what you notice here is that there's an appeal to the concept of human rights without any direct appeal to a legal mechanism. That is, it's not a mention of a treaty or international law. Because if you live in a country that hasn't signed an agreement, it doesn't mean that you can't invoke the language of human rights when making your argument or doing your advocacy. Right? The only thing that signing the, treatment, uh, the treaty deprives you of is the fact that the country signed an agreement. That is, they've committed to something. So here's the international law treatment. So critics of the use of solitary confinement argue that it should be eliminated except in the most extreme cases because it violates international human rights treaties that the United States has signed. Now, you see that the difference between the placebo and the uh, international law treatment are incredibly small. It's the same number of words, similar tone, both appeal to human rights, except in one case it's a general plea, and in another case it's a plea to a specific uh, international agreement. 
So the idea then is if you can find a difference between the international law treatment and the placebo treatment, maybe those domestic politics theories that I told you about, maybe they have some merit and they're worth exploring more. more. So here's the results of this experiment. So in this experiment, the control group uh, on a scale of 1 to 6, uh, 4.2, which translates to uh, something like 60% uh, of people were in favor of reforms that would reduce solitary confinement. So that's the control group that was told nothing about human rights. Now, the placebo group had almost the identical response. That is, it's entirely, uh, there's no statistically significant difference at all. Essentially, the exact same mean, the exact same confidence intervals, which is what you see here. It was the mean response, and then the bars are the 90% confidence intervals. But for the international law treatment that I told you about, where the only difference is the act of signing an agreement, it actually does change things. That is, it has a significant, statistically significant impact on people willing to reform the policy to be more consistent with international obligations. Now, this is obviously just one data point. This is one experiment. This is only testing people on one issue area, that is solitary confinement, on one period of time, and the respondents are adults in the United States. So it would be a mistake to conclude from this that international human rights treaties are working. But what it does tell you is that these mechanisms, the idea uh, of appealing to domestic politics, might have some merit. And the way that you can continue to test this, in spite of the fact that we have no variants and no dependent variables, is to run similar experiments, both survey experiments and field experiments, in countries in the developing world and the developed world alike, that try to get at different human rights, different agreements, and see if it's the case that the existence of the agreement does change people's opinion. Now, if it's the case that you can find evidence that it actually does move people, that's evidence that the agreements might do something. It's not definitive proof, but at least starts to move in the right direction. I think it's important we start to move in this direction because we're now 20 years into trying to study this, these problems with observational data, and we've made very little progress. So that's what I have for you today, is just to say we know very little about international law, but it's worth thinking about why, and also how we can start trying to change that. All right, thanks, and I look forward to your questions and comments. Questions? Yeah, over here. So, do you worry that in this experiment and in similar experiments, given that you have the customer human rights law, information about human rights law might have this condescend jury theorem, theorem effect? That right. If I say this is, there are treaties, there are human rights treaties that say this, you're basically saying most of the countries are doing this. And that's a different piece of information than you have to do this because you're signed the treaty. Uh, so, so it could be that the respondents are thinking to themselves, well, if everyone else is doing that and I have no idea about what's the right thing to do, the safest bet is to do what everybody else is doing, not because I signed a treaty saying that I would, but that's what everybody else seems to be doing. Right, so two different thoughts there. So the, the first idea uh, that I think your question gets at is the fact that uh, unfortunately we can't run these experiments in a vacuum, right? And so people already have other information that they're baking into their responses. So it might be the case that, that international law is making a difference on both the control, placebo, uh, and the experimental group, right? And the reason uh, that is that people have already heard something about international human rights law. Now, what's, uh, although it's a problem because this biases the results, it biases the results towards zero. And the reason why is that essentially the null hypothesis is that these agreements aren't making any difference. 
And if it's the case that people in the control group already have the treatment information, essentially, it's even more difficult for the treatment to have an effect. So even though it's a problem that people have other information, uh, the, makes the test more harder, not easier. So that's, that's actually um, a helpful property. The second question, though, uh, was, uh, was why is it uh, that people change their view? And is it the case that people change the view because of the existence of a commitment or because of the fact that the treaty signals something uh, about what others do? Now, fortunately, this is actually something that we can test uh, within experiments, uh, this idea, what mechanism is doing the work. And in fact, this exact paper uh, did have more questions that tested. And the way that you can test this is by asking subsequent follow-up questions like, do you think that it's important that the United States lives up to its uh, international commitments? Or do you think that other countries use similar policies towards solitary confinement? So you ask these subsequent questions that are all post-treatment, and you can measure the differences in responses, and then you can try to estimate by backing out which, which views people of, uh, have changed. So in this case, uh, it's exactly like what you suggested. So the, the data from this experiment suggested that the views that people had that changed was information about international standards. So people believed there's this existing international standard and the United States wasn't living up to it. It wasn't that they believed um, that just it was like sort of immoral to break a promise in all cases, but instead that they now learned that there's an international standard and the United States is, is lower than it. So I think it's possible that there's many different mechanisms uh, that are doing the work, so to speak, um, but that experiments also can help us test exactly which those are. Other questions? Yeah, in the back. Uh, so the European Union has an enforcement mechanism whereby it fines or sends in some intervening party to force member states to follow European Union laws. I've looked into the, the relationship between EU member states and the European Union in enforcing human rights obligations. Right, so there's a, um, a political scientist at Georgetown, uh, Eric Boten, that focuses on whether or not the European Court of Human Rights or European law makes a difference on countries' behavior. Um, and although the evidence is mixed, it does look like that Europe has... Um, the ability to use some of these coercive mechanisms, just like you suggested, to, uh, uh, to change behavior. Now, there isn't the corresponding evidence, though, that the International Court of Justice or the UN Committee on Human Rights has had the same effectiveness, I think, for exactly that reason. That is, Europe's able to tie um, some of its human rights standards to the ability to enter into the EU, to have certain rights within the EU, to fines, et cetera. So, um, so it is, I think, people think that, you know, it's not that uh, you can't use legal mechanisms to improve human rights. It's just that you might not be able to uh, when there are international treaties without these, these mechanisms that drive compliance. Other questions? Yeah, right here. So, I mean, and you talked about this, but human rights covers a broad range of rights, economic, social, cultural. And so I was wondering if you focus, the, if you focus your look at specific rights, so for example, if you were looking at CEDAW, and you, um, as a measure of the effectiveness of CEDAW, you were to look at something like uh, participation rates of women in elections. So, I mean, I guess my question is, like, if you narrow the focus down, does it become easier to look at the effectiveness of, of like, certain international treaties, or, or does it not make a difference? Right. So this is the move that, um, that empirical researchers make, which is you take an agreement exactly like CEDAW, and then you figure, find some specific variable that's easier to measure. So people have used... Um, uh, infant mortality rates or the relative literacy rates between men and women, which we have relatively good data on, uh, or life expectancy rates between men and women, number of elected officials uh, in parliament that are women, the number of women that vote in elections, right? So these things that other organizations collect data on and then use that to study the effectiveness of, of CEDAW. 
Um, two issues with that. So first, you still have all of these other problems that exist. Um, the fact that everyone sides CEDA and that it's this international agreement that exists with very little variance. And that almost all countries with good human rights records towards women have signed it as well. So you have that problem uh, that makes it difficult to study the effectiveness. But also, all of these measures are getting better. That is, women are voting more, uh, they're living longer, infant mortality is going down. And it's difficult to know whether or not it's the rise of treaties in the post-war period, or just the general increase in GDP per capita, or some, some other sense in which um, the rights of women are being respected more because of discourse, because of changing norms, um, economic changes, communications, what, whatever it is, right? We can imagine a lot of factors that are, that are doing it. So that's why it's tough to tease it out there. Um, the second thing I'd say there um, in response to that, that is, can we just focus in on one specific right? Uh, is that Eric Posner, uh, one of, one of uh, our professors here, has this pretty interesting theory where he says uh, that we have what he calls hypertrophy in the human rights regime, which the idea is that countries have limited enforcement resources, especially the kind of countries that we're hoping will improve their human rights record. So they can't do everything at once. But what's happened is that we've layered on and on and on to the amount of rights that we're asking them to respect. So for example, the major international treaties that we discussed include everything from the right not to be tortured to the right to leisure, right? So that's a huge range of activities that these treaties are trying to say that countries all have to provide. And so his argument is when you have these trade-offs, what happens is it might be that one right gets better because of a treaty, but instead the country in exchange gets worse on some other scores because they don't have the enforcement capacities to protect everything at once. So the issue and part of the problem that's existed in this debate is people will find one measure to which the ratification of treaties correlates to better human rights practices. But then the obvious response is you found one measure in which CEDAW worked and there's another measure uh, in which CEDAW doesn't, so we end up not really knowing what the, what the final score is. And this is made even worse from the fact that it's what's called multiple hypothesis testing. So the idea there is that um, if you have some treatment that you're interested in and you can measure just an unlimited number of potential outcomes, sooner or later you're going to find an outcome where there's a statistically, statistic, uh, statistically significant difference, right? So if you're able to look at uh, infant mortality, the rights of women to vote, et cetera, et cetera, one of those is going to correlate with the treaty ratification. But it doesn't necessarily tell us that it was anything more than data mining. So the, idea, the problem is the way that we've studied this is buying getting more specific, but getting more specific also has uh, inherent problems as well. So it's trade-off at best. In the very back. Okay, so in using your experimentalist approach, do you think you'll see a trend where countries who have like a weak rule of law will not really see the effect of international law or respect those treaties? Do you expect to see that trend, or do you think this is a bias that will actually affect your work? Right. So um, I think it's the case that we can expect international human rights agreements uh, have no effect on two groups of states, which is I think that there's no reason to expect that they have an effect uh, on the very best states, so to speak, that is stable democracies. Because the contents of the agreements are written to correspond to existing rights practices in Northern Europe and Western Europe and the United States, Canada, et cetera, right? And so there's no reason to think that treaties make a difference there. Uh, in countries with really terrible rule of law and dictators, I don't think that anyone studying the subject thinks that the treaties will make a difference there either. Because um, whether or not there's a convention, convention against torture isn't going to change the behavior of sort of the most brutal dictators. So instead, scholars think that there might be a diff they might have an effect on, um, or they're most likely to have an effect, I should say, uh, on countries that are, you would call um, 
transitioning democracies or this middle group of states. People define it in slightly different ways, but they're countries that are trying to improve their human rights practices, trying to improve their, their rule of law. Um, uh, the difficulty though, are that these are some of the same countries that are difficult and expensive to run experiments on. So this is what we've been increasingly trying to work on and we have some experiments in the field now. Um, but so what I do think is that in countries with no rule of law probably won't make a difference, but in countries with improving rule of law, think Eastern Europe or Central America, um, that it might make a difference there. Yeah, James. So I've got a question about how you might, or a, a different uh, explanation that would run contrary to the plausible story that you told us about domestic politics. Sure. So there are some countries that are described as having uh, kind of liberal autocrats, but right. more uh, maybe conservative populations or populations that would be less inclined to uh, respect human rights. In those situations, and I guess just in situations that aren't that democratically responsive to begin with, do you have any other ideas for experiments? Because um, it would seem like polling the populations there, if it's not democratically responsive, wouldn't tell you a whole lot about that story. Right, right. And if it's, and it might be, in fact, if you polled it and it's democratically responsive, but the liberal autocrat was doing a better job, then it might, there might be an inverse relationship. Right, so two things. So first, I do agree that, um, that the sort of pure public opinion mechanism uh, is only most likely to have an effect when the country's at least a little bit democratic. So I entirely agree. That said, I think in the case of what you would call liberal autocrats, um, that they're still, um, uh, still at least a little responsive to changes in public opinion, right? Because they're trying to manage um, their policies in a way that can both preserve power, uh, keep their populace happy, et cetera. So if it, I think if it's the case that you found big changes of opinion in those countries, even where there is a more conservative population, that then that might translate into um, translate into changes uh, in policy as well. The other thing that I'd say, though, is that um, uh, is that all of us in um, uh, political and social science over the last week have been to rethink the ethics of experimentation. And the reason I mean that is uh, that there's been a move towards field experiments in political science and international relations, trying to actually go out in the field and manipulate things and see how people respond. You may have heard, though, in the last week that this has blown up in some political scientists' face uh, in what's known, becoming known as the Montana Electionist Experiment, where um, political scientists sent mailers out to people, 100,000 people in Montana, telling them um, about the ideological composition of uh, donors to different candidates for judge, uh, judgeships within the state. Uh, and people are now incredibly upset that this is uh, tampering with the election. Uh, so this is the way that people have been setting elections for about a decade now. That is, going out into actual elections, changing access to information, uh, changing who gets contacted in what ways. Uh, but now I think we're having to reconsider that. And so I think that in the case of these, these um, uh, non-democratic countries, that one of the things we might have liked to have done is to, instead of just polling people, to actually gone out in the field and manipulated something. Um, but I think everyone's taking a long pause to think about what the ethics are of that before we actually, anyone goes forward with it right now. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. You noted the scarcity of any type of studies measuring the direct uh, relationship between international treaties and actual change in states' behaviors, uh, specifically with human rights, <laughs> but, and the fact that those disagree with each other, even the two studies that we have. What's the relative uh, number of frequency of the types of studies that take that two-step of looking at how international law affects the ways that domestic law is made. And do those studies tend to have similar results, or are they also coming to uh, disagreements? Right, right. So, um, so the question is, uh, what's the relative uh, 
um, results found by studies that look at the effectiveness of uh, uh, international law and domestic politics. So, um, so for the laws of war, we still only have two, really two studies that look at this. Um, for human rights, we have more like a dozen empirical papers that try to test these things, but the results are really mixed. So just this last month in August, uh, the American Political Science Review, which is um, uh, one of the field's top journals, published a paper showing, uh, looking at all of the variables that um, influence states' levels of repression, uh, and they found absolutely no effect for treaties. That is, a huge number of other factors influence whether or not states repress their citizens from their level of GDP per capita, their ethnic diversity, the number of people that they have under the age of 35 within the country. These all make a difference. Treaties that found no effect at all. Um, and the same month in the American Journal of Political Science, which is a slightly different journal, published a study showing that human rights treaties make a difference in a certain set of countries for which there's legislative um, opposition. The treaty's been signed, and it's for a subset of treaties. Right. So what we end up having is one study says one thing and then the other says the next, but there's still just no consensus at all because then people take the study that helps their pre-existing argument uh, and run with that. So we essentially have a decade of studies going back and forth that have changed their measurement methods, their data collection practices, uh, and have disagreements. So we have more like, let's say, a dozen studies that are empirical and human rights specifically, and there's um, pretty conflicting conclusions. Any other questions? Yeah, in the back yeah, sure. So here's one good example um, that spawned now um, uh, a book and some subsequent papers um, led by a guy named Mike Finley at the University of Texas, but with a lot of co-authors. And what they did is that there's um, international laws that restrict the incorporation uh, of, uh, of companies anonymously. That is, to incorporate a company uh, that you're supposed to collect information on the person trying to do it. So what they did is they contacted 1,800 different uh, uh, companies around the world where their business is incorporating companies for people. That is, you contact them and they set up a business. Um, and they tried to see who would let them actually anonymously incorporate a corporation. Uh, and what they found, um, found in it, first off, uh, is that a huge number of people let them anonymously incorporate. And then on top of that, even when they then themselves mentioned the existence of international law, that people were often still willing to let them do that. So they, they said, we know there's treaties preventing you from letting us do this, but could we please do it? Um, and the most common response was to charge more money. So, um, <laughs> so that's, that's one example um, uh, that exists uh, trying to study the effectiveness of international law. Um, anyone else? Questions? Yeah, John. <laughs> Sure. So, um, so there is an issue that exists. Uh, so the question is, when, when can public opinion be a good proxy for effectiveness? Now, certainly a problem that we have uh, with using public opinion as effectiveness is that even if you can demonstrate the existence of a treaty changes public opinion, it doesn't mean there'll be a corresponding change in public policy, right? Um, so we think that the, the changes in public opinion are, would be most likely to have, have an effect when one, the country is democratic, and two, it's a close call. That is, when something either already has universally high support or universally low support, documenting a 5-10% change in public opinion won't necessarily have that big of a change. But it might if it's a, it's a change that's significant and it's a close call. Furthermore, it matters whether or not the issue is high salience. That is, it might actually make it onto the domestic agenda. So these would be the circumstances where public opinion would be the best possible uh, mechanism. That's 
right. All right. One more, uh, one more question, and then we'll be done. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there's some good case studies that people have done with qualitative work where they've shown that the fact that something becomes a treaty, it can then place that issue on the domestic agenda. So one example was uh, Japan with the, um, the, with the CEDA, the Treaty on Eliminating Discrimination Against Women. So it was the case that Japan had in place a number of policies that explicitly created things like two-tracked two tracked careers for women at companies, et cetera. Um, and so after CEDA came um, up for signature, uh, Japan, supposedly at least according to this research, uh, had this big internal debate saying, well, we don't want to be one of the countries that doesn't sign on to CEDA. And it's important to us that people know that Japan's a country that's committed to being progressive on human rights. Uh, and because of this, it at least supposedly created a big national debate. And so part of the argument that advocates for human rights agreements say is that it, for, uh, it creates what they call an exogenous shock to the domestic agenda. That is, people might not have been talking about women's rights in Japan in 1986, but all of a sudden it's on, on the conversation. And you might think the same thing with elimination uh, of uh, conventions against torture or the rights of children, et cetera, that it forces countries to, to reconsider this. So that's at least part of the, the argument that human rights advocates make. All right, well, I think we're about done now and that uh, lunch is over, but thank you all so much for coming and for taking the time to do this. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.